This guy is the real deal. Uh, he loves people. He loves the city of Kinston, North Carolina. Their church is called Collective Church. On Easter Sunday, we were able to do a, a love offering for them, and we're going to continue to to support Collective through the years, not only financially but morale and if and prayer. If you know people in Kinston who are far from God, who don't have a church home, uh, let me know. Find Corey today. And uh, just like Venture tries to be a church that tears down the walls that make it hard to go to church, this, this is the kind of place they want to be, too. And so uh, you can feel safe sending your friends over to Corey. I can say so much more, but you have things to say, too. <laughs> Corey, I love you, man. And uh, thank you for being here. Take it away. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good morning, Venture Church. Like Chris said, uh, my name is Corey Pelleggi. And man, it's such an honor to be here this Sunday morning. Uh, Chris is someone that I have a lot of respect for. Uh, in fact, he is my church planting coach right now. So we have calls every other week, and I call him, and I just have these long lists of questions of like, Chris, I don't know what I'm doing here, or I need help here, or we have this problem, or we have that problem. And I call him, and he always has really, really good answers. He's always able to encourage me. So I have a lot of respect for Chris, and I'm just really excited to be here this Sunday morning. A fun fact, I am actually from Wilmington. I grew up in this area. Technically, I was born in New York, lived there for a couple years. We moved here back in like 1994. I was like three or four years old, and that was way back when Wilmington was a lot smaller, like Mayfair wasn't even a place yet, and now Wilmington has just exploded. Uh, but it's always good to come back to Wilmington and just kind of see the city and see old friends and see family. So I am excited to be here this morning. Uh, I do want to take a quick second just to kind of introduce you to my family. Uh, we have quite a big family. We have a picture on the screen that we're going to show you guys. Uh, but you'll see in this picture that we have a lot of kids in our house. Uh, we have five kids right now. And I say right now not because we're going to like give a kid away or something like that. Uh, but because we're foster parents. And so we have five kids. We have two biological kids. Uh, we have two kids that we have adopted through foster care. Uh, and then we have one current foster kid right now. And so our life is a little bit crazy. Uh, but you'll see in this picture, you'll see my beautiful wife, Megan. She is incredible. She's my best friend. She's my better half. We actually met here in Wilmington uh, on the campus of UNCW doing like a Bible study, like a house church type thing with college students. And so we met here in Wilmington. Uh, my wife is, I have to be careful to say, not a, a former Marine because I've made that mistake before. And you can't say that someone's a former Marine, right? Because once a Marine, always a Marine. That's right. Uh, and so my wife spent six years as an officer in the Marine Corps. So she is just incredible. And she's the one, she keeps our kids in line. Uh, and you'll see in this picture, you'll see uh, four out of the five of our kids. And this is a little, little bit older of a picture. Uh, but I'm sharing it for a reason. So in this picture, you'll see our 11-year-old, now 12-year-old daughter, Lily. Uh, and Lily has been adopted through foster care, and she is incredible. And this picture is actually from her adoption party. And so Lily lived with us for almost two years as a foster child. And the state came to us and said, hey, like, uh, we want to uh, give you the opportunity to adopt Lily. And so we said, absolutely. Like, we think she's just part of our family now. And so we threw this big celebration for her to celebrate her getting adopted into our family. 
And, you know, she'd been with us for a couple of years, and so obviously she'd been in church, and she'd been asking all these questions about Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus. And so she made the decision that at her baptism, or at her adoption party, uh, she wanted to get baptized as well. And so we had, yeah, you can clap for that. That's awesome. Uh, we rented this huge inflatable bouncy house with like a slide that went into a pool. And so she got to get baptized in front of all of her family and friends. And it was just a really cool moment for us. Uh, you'll also see in this picture uh, our now six-year-old daughter, Sayla. And she is the spitting image of her mom. She's a little spitfire. She keeps us on our toes. But we love Sayla to death. You'll also see uh, our three-year-old, Nia. She has also been adopted through foster care. And Nia keeps us on our toes for a different reason. Uh, she was recently diagnosed with autism. And so me and Megan are just learning all that we can about being the best parents that we can be to Nia. And it's messy, and we're not perfect at it, but we're learning and we're trying. And man, we love Nia. She just has this personality about her. She's just full of life, and we love her. Uh, you'll also see in this picture our son, Luca. And in this picture, he's a lot smaller. He's like maybe a month or two old in that picture. Uh, now he's a year old, and he's this chunky, chunky baby. Uh, but I'm sharing this picture for a reason, because if you could imagine, this is our family. That is about the size that Alex is right now. He's a little guy. Uh, and then you could have picture my wife holding like a chunky year-old baby, and that's our family right now. We have five kids, and life is chaotic, uh, but we wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, and what I want to do with our time together this morning is, is really just answer a question that we've been getting nonstop ever since we announced that we're planting a church in Kinston, North Carolina. And you guys know what that question is? Why? Why? That's a question that we get all of the time in life, right? Especially if you have young kids, we get that question all the time about everything. You know, why is the sky blue? Or why is the grass green? Or why do I have to make my bed? Or why do I have to do this? Or why do I have to do that? Like, kids ask that question all the time. But it's actually a really good question. Right? In fact, I think the reason why we ask those questions is because we know that God created life with meaning and with purpose. And so even as a kid at a young age, we're asking those questions of like, what's the purpose of this? Or what's the meaning behind this? Or why, 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 why this? Or why that? And so we ask those questions because they're really important questions. In fact, at our church, Collective Church, we have a, a couple of values that we live by. And our very first value at the church is the phrase, start with why? Uh, in fact, there's a great book with the same title written by Simon Sinek. And in that book, he talks about how, you know, most of the time as people, we can answer like the what questions of what we do. And we can answer the how questions of how we do it. But he makes the argument that the most important and the most difficult question to answer is why. Why do we do what we do? And in the book, he gives us this definition for like what a why statement is. He says, your why, your why statement is the compelling higher purpose that inspires you and acts as the source of all that you do, right? That is your why. And so ever since we announced that we're planting a church in Kinston, we've gotten all the why questions. You know, why are you planting a church? Why are you as a 31-year-old husband and a father with a family to provide for? Why are you taking this massive risk to plant a church? 
Why have you been going to church after church, preaching and sharing and fundraising to help support this church? Why are you building a launch team? Why are you meeting at the movie theater of all places in Kinston? Why are you buying all this equipment in a truck, in a trailer? And why are you going to set it up week after week after week? Why are you doing all these outreach events in the city of Kinston? Why did you buy a concession trailer and flip it into a snow cone trailer and go out into the community and hand out free snow cones, right? Why are you planting this church? And it's a really good question. And so what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to answer that question for myself personally, and I kind of want to go into scripture and look at why answering that question is so important, and then I want to challenge you guys with your own personal why statements. And so for me personally, Why do I feel called to be the lead pastor of Collective Church? Why do I feel called to plant this new church? You have to understand, for me growing up in like middle school and high school, man, I was not a Christian. I did not care about God. I did not care about church. I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I was going in the complete opposite direction. And because of that, all throughout middle school, all throughout high school, like I kind of just wore this mask, right? Just being what I thought everyone else wanted me to be, being what I thought success was. And I'd love to say that I thought success was, you know, like having a 4.0 GPA and caring about school and doing all these extracurricular activities so I could get into a really good college. But unfortunately, that's not how I define success. For me, I looked at the world around me and I said, okay, if I'm going to be accepted by people, then I need to party, I need to drink, I need to do drugs, I need to chase girls, I need to do all these really dumb things that I'm not proud of today. And that was the mask that I just wore all throughout middle school and high school, just being what I thought everyone else wanted me to be. And when I finally graduated from high school, man, I I didn't have any purpose. I didn't have a why for my life. I barely graduated. I had a terrible GPA. I didn't apply to a single college. I had no direction for my life whatsoever. And I took a job doing steel construction because, you know, I thought the money was pretty good for like a 19, 18, 19-year-old kid. But if I can be honest... 19-year-old Corey, man, I felt like a fraud. I felt like people didn't know the real me, and I felt like if they knew the real me, that they would reject me, but then I felt confused because I didn't even know the real me. I didn't even know what my why was. I didn't know what my purpose was, and so I was confused. I felt angry because I felt like other people had figured out life, but I was still struggling with it. I felt ashamed because I knew the way that I was living was not right. I felt depressed and if I can be honest, at 19 years old, with my whole life in front of me, I hit rock bottom. And one night, just making some dumb decisions, messing around with drugs, I lost the the will to live. And if it wasn't for a couple of people who who really love me and who really care about me that pulled me through that dark moment, I want to be here this morning. But I can also say that at the darkest moment of my life, that's where I found hope, because that's where I met Jesus. And Jesus completely transformed my life. He gave me a purpose. He gave me a why, and my life completely changed to the point where at 20 years old, I'm leaving to go to Florida to go to ministry school where I don't know anybody because I feel like God is calling me to do full-time ministry. And so when people ask me, why are you planting this church? It's because I know there's people like 19-year-old Corey. 
There's thousands of people in the Kinston area who don't know Jesus, who don't know their why, who don't have a purpose, and they're struggling. And they feel the same way that I felt when I was 19. That's why I'm planting a church. That's why Venture Church was planted to reach people like that in Wilmington. And that's why we're planting Collective Church in Kinston as well. And so what I want to do this morning with you guys is really challenge you with this question. What is your why? What is your why statement? If you had to make one up right now, I'm not saying that you're planting a church or starting a business or something like that, but for you personally, what is your why? And that's a really difficult question. That's a really hard question to answer. And so what I want to do is I want to go to the Bible And I want to see what the Bible can teach us about this. And so if you have your Bibles or your phone, uh, feel free to flip your Bibles open to John chapter 5. We're going to be uh, reading some verses from John 5. We'll also have the verses on the screen behind me. But really quick, if I could just ask everyone here for kind of a a silly but a really important favor. Uh, And this is it. If you already have your phone out and you're going to your Bible app, could you do me a favor and just click on the Facebook app. Can you search for Collective Church, and can you hit the the like or the follow button? And I know that sounds a little bit silly, but I promise you it's really, really important. Because you see, as we're planting this new church in Kinston, you know, people are going to hear about our church. And like a lot of us would do when we hear about a new business or something, we're going to go to Facebook and we're going to check them out. And if people look at our Facebook and they're like, oh, this church has like 50 followers. This seems really weird. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to check out that church, right? But if we have a pretty good following on Facebook, it kind of builds credibility for the church, which means more people are going to be willing to check us out, which means it makes it easier for people to hear the gospel. And so it sounds really silly, but I promise you it's important. So you could do that right now really quick. You could do that later, but it would help us out more than you realize. But like I said, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 1, and we're kind of just going to jump right into it. So this is John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and this is what it says. It says, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. I want to pause there for a second. I kind of want to set the scene for us, kind of help us imagine what it would be like to be there in that moment. So you have these pools in the city of Jerusalem, and if you don't know, Jerusalem was originally built by the Israelites, and so these pools originally were built as like these places for these like ritual like cleansings, right? They had a good purpose for these pools. But at this time in Jesus' life, you know, the the empire of Rome has taken over Jerusalem. And so what historians have found is they took these pools and they turned them into these like like pagan places of worship. They worship this Roman god who is the god of water and healing. And so what they told people was, hey, if you go to this pool, at certain points throughout the day, this pool is going to bubble up. And the first person who gets to that bubbling water is going to be healed, right? 
But historians have also found that there's really no stories that prove any healings happened at these pools during this time. In fact, a lot of them believe that the Romans did this as a way to kind of get like sick begging people off the streets, right? They tell them, hey, go to this one place, just gather there. And they gave them this kind of like false hope because obviously bubbling water cannot fulfill the hope that they're looking for. Right? And so you have this pool with all these sick people laying there. And do you see the three types of people who are laying at this pool? It says there's blind, there's lame, and there's paralyzed. Right? So you have literally half of the people there are lame and paralyzed, meaning they can't move very quickly. Right? And then the other half are blind, meaning they can't see where they're going. And they're told, hey, you need to get to this one particular spot when the water starts bubbling as fast as you can. And do you see what a a cruel, twisted game that is? Literally half the people there can't move quickly to get to the water. And the other half, the people can't see where they're going to get to the water. And so can you imagine the chaos that happens throughout the day as this water starts bubbling up and you have like paralyzed people who are probably like dragging themselves as fast as they can to try to get to that water because they can see it. But then you have blind people who hear what's going on. They can't see where they're going. So they just take off running trying to get there. And you probably have like blind people kicking paralyzed people and paralyzed people like tripping blind people as there's mad rush of hurt people trying to find hope in this bubbling water. I mean, I can't think of a better picture for the world that we live in today. And it looks a little bit different today, but we still have hurt people willing to hurt other people seeking false hope. So my question for you all this morning is, what is your bubbling water? As we ask this question of, you know, what is your why? What is your purpose? I think the easiest way for you to answer that question is just figure out what are you putting your hope in right now? What is that one thing that you so desperately want right now? Maybe you're here this morning and it's like your career. It's like a job promotion or if I can make this much money, if I can get here, I'll get respect and people will actually care about me. And so like my bubbling water is like, man, I just got to get this next promotion. I got to get to this next level at my job, or I've got to do this to make more money. And and your bubbling water is your career, or maybe it's money, or maybe you're here this morning and your bubbling water is like a relationship. You're like, man, if I could just find the right girl, if I could just find the right guy, man, my life will get so much better. Like I'm putting all my hope in that one thing. What is your bubbling water? What is that one thing that you're putting all of your hope in? right now. For this guy laying at this pool for 38 years, he put all of his hope in this bubbling water, something that actually can't fulfill that hope. Let's keep reading the story. Let's see what happens as we continue to read. Uh, In verse 6, this is what it says. It says, when Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. I want to pause there for a second. Because Jesus asked this man a question that kind of almost sounds like sarcastic, right? Like he goes up to this guy who's paralyzed and he's like, 
would you like to get well? And, you know, obviously this guy wants to get well, but Jesus is like testing him here because what this man says in his response proves where he's putting his hope, right? Jesus says, hey, do you want to get well? And the guy says, I can't because I have no one to get me to this bubbling water, right? He's letting Jesus know, yeah, this is what my hope is in, is in this bubbling water. And if Jesus was a nice guy, you know, he would just respond to him and be like, oh, okay, yeah, like when the water starts bubbling up, the next time I'll pick you up and I'll just like throw you in there and everything will be great. That's not what Jesus does here, right? Because Jesus knows that this man is putting all of his hope in the wrong thing. Because the truth is, we are all putting our hope in something. In fact, uh, there's this leading uh, psychologist named Eric Erickson, uh, and he has this quote. This is a guy who's not a, Christian, not a Christian. He has this quote about hope. He says this. He says, hope is both the earliest and the most indispensable virtue inherent in the state of being alive. He says, if life is to be sustained, hope must remain. Right? Basically what he's saying is, if you're alive, you are hoping in something. And this man was putting all of his hope in this bubbling water. And as we keep reading, it says this in verse 8. It says, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. Now, the Bible doesn't give us many details about what happens in this moment. You know, if I'm laying there at this pool and I see one guy get healed, like, I'd be running up to Jesus, like, heal me too, heal me too. And the Bible doesn't say anything about that happening. It doesn't say that this man, like, gets up and starts shouting and cheering and, like, going crazy because now he can walk. It doesn't say any of that. The only thing the Bible says after this moment is that this man gets healed, he picks up his mat, he starts walking, and instantly people get mad at him. It says these religious leaders, they start questioning him, like, what are you doing? Today is the Sabbath, meaning you can't do any work today. We have all these rules about the Sabbath. You can't pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. And so these religious leaders just get mad at this guy. This guy who's been searching for hope for 38 years, he finally finds hope. He finally gets healed. And these guys just get mad at him. And they start saying, like, well, who told you to pick up your mat? Who told you? to start walking. And this guy's like, I don't know. The guy didn't give me his name. He just said, pick up your mat and walk. So obviously, I listened to him. And as we keep reading the story, uh, Jesus finds his way back to this man. And it says this in verse 13. It's kind of a weird phrase, but Jesus says this to the man when he finds him again. He says, now you are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Now, that's a weird verse, and it might sound a little bit like a threat, but I promise you that's not what Jesus is doing in this moment, right? What Jesus is doing in this moment is reminding this man, hey, you just put all of your hope for 38 years. For 38 years, you wasted your life putting your hope in this thing that would have left you lying at this pool for who knows how long. Now you know to put your hope in me, so don't make the mistake of, again of putting your hope in something else because something worse may happen to you, right? You just wasted 38 years of your life putting your hope in something that could never fulfill it. Don't do that again, right? And then this man, after he finds out who Jesus is, he goes back to the religious leaders and he says, hey, just want to let you guys know it was Jesus who healed me. Jesus is the one who did it. 
And then these religious leaders, they hunt down Jesus. And in John 5, it kind of details this argument that Jesus gets in with these religious leaders. Because they start questioning him. They're mad about what he told this guy to do. And so they start asking him all these questions. And we don't have time to read through the whole chapter. But what I want to do is just pull a couple of key verses from this argument or discussion that Jesus has with these religious leaders. Because he gets to the point that he was trying to make by healing this man. And so in John 5, uh, in verse 24, Jesus says this to the religious leaders. He says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And the conversation continues, and Jesus says this to the religious leaders in verse 39 of John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. This is the main point that I want to leave you with this morning. It's this. Where you put your hope is the difference between death and eternal life, right? Where you put your hope is the difference between death and eternal life. This man was laying at this pool for 38 years, putting all of his hope in this bubbling water, and he probably would have died there at that pool, putting his hope in something that could not actually fulfill it. And so Jesus says, no, I am the greater hope because the hope that I offer is the hope of eternal life, right? That is our hope as Christians. Yes, Jesus offers us the forgiveness of sins for what? So that we can have eternal life, so that we can live with God forever. That is the hope that Jesus offers us. And so where we put our hope is the difference between death and eternal life. I can say this from experience. I wasted 19 years of my life chasing the hope that the world had to offer and just feeling empty and broken. But I can tell you that the hope that Jesus offers will never let you down. So as, as we ask this question about what is your why, what, what is your purpose it has to start with, what is the thing that you're hoping for right now? Because that's going to orient your entire life. If your hope is eternal life, is your hope, is your relationship with Jesus, that's going to naturally orient the way that you live your life. But if your hope is in something else, it can paralyze you and debilitate you because you're putting your hope in something that actually can't fulfill it. And so what do we do moving forward? You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're like, yeah, I've been chasing all these different hopes that the world has to offer. And yeah, it just left me feeling like empty and broken and I don't know what to do. Man, I would encourage you to follow Jesus. The hope that Jesus offers is better and the only true hope that we have in this broken world that we live in. And so what does it look like to follow Jesus? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, this guy named Peter, he preaches this sermon to this large crowd of people, and it says that they're cut to the heart, and they ask him, like, hey, what are we supposed to do? How do we follow Jesus? And Peter responds, and he says, hey, repent 
and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that word repent, it just means basically changing your mind, changing the direction of your life, saying, hey, I was living this way, and I was putting my hope in this, and I was going that direction, but now I'm saying, hey, I'm going this way, and I'm following Jesus. So if that's you this morning, man, I would encourage you, before you leave this morning, you can talk to me, you can talk to Chris. We would love to have that conversation with you of what it looks like to follow Jesus, because I believe it's the greatest hope that we have in the world. But maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, you know, I'm a Christian, I've been following Jesus, but if I can be honest, I found myself putting hope in other things, putting my hope in the things of the world, and yeah, I've been chasing those things, and I'm beginning to realize that those things are actually hurting me. If that's you, man, I'd encourage you, we would just love to pray for you, just to have a conversation with you about that. So if that's you, absolutely, you can come talk to me after service. You can come talk to Chris after service. We'd love to have that conversation with you and just pray with you. But I can say without a doubt from personal experience that if you put your hope in the things of the world, yeah, you might actually achieve something, but then you're always going to feel like you have to chase the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But I can promise you, if you put your hope in Jesus, he won't let you down. Let's pray.